useful information to have. Um, good morning. It's good to see all of you. My name is Steve. And uh, today uh, we're going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 2. This is not your traditional Advent text. This is not going to be your traditional Advent sermon, but the application is very Adventy. So let's read from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When David's time, excuse me, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let me begin by reminding you of the um, Greek myth of Achilles. Achilles, you might remember, was a magnificent warrior uh, of astonishing skill and strength. And he was the hero of the Trojan War, and it appeared to everyone who witnessed his great deeds that he was impervious to death. And that, according, you know, according to the legend, that was true. And the way that he gained that immunity to death was kind of fascinating. If you remember the story, uh, when he was an infant, his mother took him uh, down to the river Styx, which was the river that divided the world of the living from the world of the dead. And there his mother dipped the infant Achilles into the water, and she did so by his heel, by holding onto his heel, dipped him into the water. And that conferred kind of this immortality to him, but because she had dipped him by his heel, the result was that Achilles couldn't withstand, he could withstand any assault anywhere on his body except for his heel. That was the one place where the waters did not touch him. The heel was the place of his uh, tragic vulnerability. And as it happened near the end of the Trojan War, Achilles was pierced by an enemy arrow and the only place where he was weak, and he died in the way of all mortals. So today, we're going to continue our series preaching through the entire Bible, and in this sermon, we reach Solomon, the son of David. And Solomon was this astonishing figure. He was wiser and richer than any human being on the planet and seemingly impervious to folly. And yet, Solomon's heel, so to speak, was vulnerable, and ultimately an arrow would pierce that heel and bring his head down to the grave in shame. But what's interesting is that the Bible, you know, take all of that, the Bible does not present Solomon as a kind of um, case study or like a cautionary tale for us to learn how to walk in wisdom and to avoid folly. But that's how he's typically portrayed, if you've ever read it or heard sermons on it. Like, look how wise Solomon was. And then look how foolish he was at the end of his life. Therefore, be wise like Solomon. 
but don't imitate his foolishness. But here's where I tell you that that, that is the exact wrong interpretation of his life. Now, I mean, it, like, I shouldn't say it's all wrong. It, it's, it's still true. Like, yes, walk in wisdom. Don't walk in folly. That, that's all still true. But that interpretation of his life is woefully inadequate. But as I'm going to show you, if you really understand what Solomon's life and his folly and his wisdom and his death, if you really understand what that's trying to teach us, then it could be one of the most life-changing things you ever learned. So, in order to understand Solomon, let's just look at it under two headings. Number one, we'll look at the life of Solomon as it is presented to us in 1 Kings. And then second, we're going to ask, what does Christ make of Solomon's life? Okay, so the life of Solomon, then what does Christ make of it? So first, the life of Solomon. And our text begins with that uh, story we read at the beginning between David and Solomon. David is on his deathbed, and he tells his son Solomon, who will reign as king in his place, that he must remember the command of the Lord and the promise of the Lord. The command is that Solomon must walk in line with the teachings of Moses and be faithful to the Lord. And then the promise is that if Solomon succeeds in doing that, that the Lord will establish Solomon's throne and that David will never lack a man to sit upon the throne. He will establish his, um, his uh, dynasty forever. So right up front, we have to keep David's charge in mind. Solomon, my son, above all, walk in the ways of the Lord and you will prosper. And Solomon... I mean, he has a pretty good start in this respect. Like, very early on in the next chapter, we see that he loves the Lord. But in that same moment, in that same breath, we also see Solomon's heel exposed. Look at this is in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon, verse 3, loved the Lord, walking in, his statute, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So first, Solomon marries an Egyptian. And this is questionable at best. Like Egyptians, to be fair, were not among the nationalities that the Lord prohibited his people from marrying into. But the Lord is very clear that, you know, as we've read this together, if you've been reading with us, that as the people enter the promised land, there are there's a very clear instruction from the Lord, you must not intermarry with those people. Why? Because they will turn away your hearts after their gods. That's the reason. You know, it's not some sort of like xenophobic anything. It's just, no, if you marry into that, they will turn your hearts to their gods. So even though Egyptians were not on the list of forbidden marriages, we see here that Solomon has a weakness for foreign women. And that's going to be important later, so put that in your pocket. We'll get back to it. Secondly, the second thing we see in this passage is that we see that Solomon loved the Lord. Now, that, that, is, that is a beautiful thing. 
to have said about you. And, and it's very clear. He loved the Lord. But the beauty of that statement is qualified. It says that he loved the Lord, but he still made sacrifice in the high places. Now, that means almost nothing to us. Uh, but the meaning would have been absolutely clear to those who were originally hearing this. The high places are where the people of all the other nations went to make their sacrifices. Now, we're not told that Solomon is up there sacrificing to pagan gods, so let's just suppose that he's going to the high places to sacrifice to the Lord. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Even if that was true, he still would have been transgressing the law. Because if you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 12, the Lord is explicit. He says this, starting in verse 1. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land of the Lord your God, that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and every and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Couldn't be clearer. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. So what are we to take away from this? We're to take away that it's the Lord who decides how and where his people worship him. That's his prerogative. And he has said here explicitly, you shall not worship me on the high places. And yet, despite Solomon's love for the Lord, here's another place where we see his heel exposed. He has a weakness for foreign women, and he violates the statutes of God by worshiping in the way that seems best to him, not according to the law of Moses. Now, What's downright astonishing is that as Solomon is sacrificing in one of these high places, which he is strictly forbidden to do, like in that moment while he is there, the Lord visits him. He doesn't slap him on the wrist and like for sacrificing here in a place where he wasn't supposed to, but instead he offers Solomon grace beyond measure, overflows his cup. And this account is probably one of the most defining moments of Solomon's story, and we see it in 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant a king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you, have whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Now here's his request. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind 
to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? So instead of chastising Solomon for his weakness and sin, the Lord actually gives to Solomon an offer far beyond anything that could be reckoned. He says, ask what I shall give you. It's like a blank check, and Solomon chooses well. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for honor. He asks for an understanding mind so that he might serve and rule the people of God well. And this request pleases the Lord, so much so that not only does God actually grant him this wisdom, he also grants him, in addition to the wisdom, riches and honor beyond anything we could imagine. And then in verse 14, the Lord reminds Solomon what David his father reminded him of. He says, and if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. The Lord says, Solomon, I've given you wisdom and riches and honor beyond anyone who has ever lived, but you must remember to walk in my ways. And shouldn't he have remembered? No one had a better start than him. Now, let's take a break for a second. We need to talk about wisdom. Wisdom, according to the scriptures, is basically defined in three ways. I'm going to tell you two here. We'll get to the third one later. And both the definitions that I'm going to give you here were actually given to us by Solomon himself in the Proverbs. So first, wisdom is the state of mind that enables a person to understand the world as it really is. Wisdom is a state of mind that enables a person to understand the world as it really is. Like, I've talked about this before. Like, every piece of wood has a grain to it. And anybody who works with wood knows that if you want a clean cut, you must cut it with the grain, not against it. Although I'm not a woodworker. Maybe that's not true with power tools anymore. But just, you know, maybe I, just, whatever. So it's... Let's just suppose it's true. It used to be true anyway. Okay. Um, in the same way, so in the same way that, that the, you have to cut with the grain, wisdom understands that this world that we live in has a certain grain to it as well. And the grain of this world is that it was made by God. And therefore, a wise man or a wise woman understands that reality and then lives according to God's order. Okay, so that's the first definition of wisdom. One of my favorite books, um, if you know me, is A River Runs Through It by Norman MacLean. And in it, there's a scene where the father in the book, who's a Presbyterian minister, sits on the bank of a river with his sons, or with one of his sons anyway, and he's reading the Gospel of John. And his son comes up and asks, what are you reading? And he says this. In the part I was reading, it says the word was in the beginning, and that's right. I used to think water was first, but if you listen carefully, you will hear that the words are underneath the water. Now, for most people, when they see a river, what they see is water flowing around rocks. But when this man saw a river, he could see beneath it to the words that created it. 
That's something like what I mean by wisdom in defining it this way. The words of God created all that we can see. The wise man, the wise woman, doesn't make conclusions about the meaning of the world based on uh, merely um, sensory input, but rather on the words beneath what we see. Okay, so that's the first definition. Second definition of wisdom from Proverbs is that it is the equivalent of living in the fear of the Lord. And that shouldn't surprise us. If the wise person can discern the words of God that hold all things together, then the natural consequence is that the person will live their lives in humble obedience, which is what the fear of the Lord means, humble obedience to that revelation. Okay, so, so this is Solomon. He can see beneath what's going on. He can, un, he can discern the word of the Lord beneath all things. And at least in the beginning, he's ordering his life relatively in accordance with it. Now, the great illustration of this wisdom and the, the, um, his ability to see beneath what can be seen, uh, we find in chapter 3. Um, two women, I'll just tell you the story, two women come to him with a very difficult case. The way the story goes is that both of these women were living in the same household. On the same night, they both had babies. And woman A, uh, for whatever reason, whoever, who knows how it happened, accident, I suppose, um, smothered her child in, in, at night while they were sleeping. And so she woke up, and her child was dead. Woman B had a baby, and the child lived. No problems. And so during the night, woman A switches the children. So that now the woman here wakes up with the child, and it's a tragedy. So she, kno she knows just by looking at it, this is not my baby. My mother knows. This is not my child. And so they come to Solomon, both of them, with one baby, and they tell the story. And like today, easy. Get, get out a needle. Let's just check the DNA. Let's get some science, you know, whatever. Like easy. They didn't have that back then. How in the world is Solomon going to figure this one out? Well, you've probably read it. You know what he does. He says, okay, I bring the child here and cut it in half and let each of the women have half. At that, woman A, who did the stealing, said, fine, let's do that. That's fair. Woman B, who was the true mother, said, no, no, don't harm the child. And Solomon knows she's the true mother. Like, what? That's how? That's astonishing. How in the world? That, that is wisdom beyond reckoning. And so Solomon, as a result of this wisdom, continues to prosper, brings his kingdom right along into his prosperity. We're told in chapter 4 that Solomon was reckoned the wisest man in the world and that he was wealthy beyond measure. It says that, like silver wasn't even a thing. It was like nobody really cared about There was so much silver, nobody cared. In chapter 6 through 8, Solomon makes preparation for and then builds the temple of God. 
This was something his father David wanted to do but was unable to do because of the blood on his hands. And then when Solomon stands to give the benediction at the dedication of the temple, he acknowledges God's goodness in all of it. We see this in 1 Kings 8, verse 15 and 20. 15, and he said, this is Solomon, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he has promised with his mouth to David my father. He knows the fulfillment of the promise of God. And then verse 20, now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he had made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice that emphasis on the promises of God and the fulfillment of them. At that moment, Solomon knew that God was faithful. Not one of his words falls to the ground. He knew it. And he also knew that what David, his father, said to him at the beginning in chapter 2 was true. He said, do not forsake the promises of God. And here, it could not be any clearer to Solomon. He has so far been wise without measure and has lived in accordance with that wisdom. His heel had yet to be uncovered. But it would not always be so. We might as well read the account of the arrow that struck his heel in chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations, concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither they shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So even if daughter of Pharaoh was questionable, it's no longer questionable. These are forbidden. These marriages are forbidden. Solomon clung to these in love. He had, wait for it, 700 wives who were princesses. It's not all. And 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after, Ashtoreth, went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Like no one was better equipped to avoid this fate than Solomon. And yet, when the arrow struck his heel, he collapsed and rejected the Lord his God who had always kept his promises to him and had given him more than any man had ever been given. Now, that's the life of Solomon. And at this point, we tend to use Solomon's life as a cautionary tale. We say, be careful, 
to walk in God's ways. Just don't fall like Solomon did. Protect yourself from your vulnerable weaknesses so that you might not, in the end, reject God like Solomon did. That's our application. Listen, we place ourselves in the place of Solomon. We try to understand, what does this story mean? We place ourselves in the role of Solomon. Try to avoid his example. And as I said in the beginning, that, that's true. I mean, as far as it goes, that, that yes, be wise. Don't, you know, break the first and second commandments. So that's good advice. That's good. But when Christ reflects on the life of Solomon, that is not how he applies it. And that brings us to our second point. What does Christ make of Solomon? So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is arguing with a bunch of scribes, a bunch of Pharisees, and they demand to see a miraculous sign from him in order to prove that he has the authority, the authority to claim that he is the Son of God. But Jesus tells them he's not going to jump through their hoops. The only sign that they're going to get, he tells them, is the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, which is a veiled reference to his death and resurrection. And then he ends the argument like this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. The queen of the south <clears throat> will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Stop there for a moment. That's not the whole verse, but stop there for a second. Who is the queen of the south? Well, I skipped over her in the recounting of Solomon's life, and here's the time where we read it. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. Just, if, you, if you've left, if you, you're thinking about something, just come here for a second, because this, this is beautiful. Now, starting in verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord... There was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So when she beheld Solomon's wisdom, and riches and honor, there was no more breath in her. And then just watch how Jesus finishes his assessment of this story. Back to Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came 
from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When Jesus wants to reflect on the life of Solomon, he doesn't cast us in the role of Solomon. Instead, he casts himself into the role of Solomon and as one who has surpassed Solomon. He cast, listen, he cast us in the role of the queen of Sheba who beheld Solomon and couldn't catch her breath for the astonishment of all, like, of all that she saw. Jesus says, look to me and then fall to the ground in wonder. That is the true application of Solomon's life for us. Now, I said earlier that the scriptures define wisdom in three ways. First, we said that the words of God are beneath everything. That's wisdom. Second, that the wise person, having discerned those words, lives their lives in accordance with them. Now let's go to the Apostle Paul for the third definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus. Listen, who became to us wisdom from God? Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ Himself is our wisdom. If you listen closely, you can hear the words spoken by His life. And these words are, are beneath even the words that Solomon could hear. The words that hold the universe together are words of redemption and sacrifice and atonement. That in love, God gave his only begotten son to be crucified on behalf of those of us who, like Solomon, have chased after other gods, rejected the Lord our God, and served the abominations of our own hearts. Jesus Christ was plunged into the river Styx, not so that he could be yanked out and become a great hero on the battlefield, albeit with one area of weakness. Rather, he was plunged into that dark river so that he might pass through the agony of death and rise to life everlasting. And he did that so that we may behold him in this Advent season and find that there is no more breath left within us. And brothers and sisters, one day we shall open resurrected eyes in the birth of the new world and the words of the Queen of Sheba will be on our mouth. Half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. What a day. Well, we come now to a table, and this table requires wisdom. To our eyes, it looks like we're eating bread, mere bread, and drinking a mere cup. But if you listen carefully, under these elements are the words of God. 
And those words are this, that you are loved more than you could possibly imagine, that Christ, your Lord, is forgiving, merciful, and glorious beyond all our reckoning. And that means that our proper response to this meal is to take the posture of the Queen of Sheba and to gaze in wonder at Jesus Christ and worship him with glad hearts. So, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray.